We are uh, starting a new series today, which I'm excited about, and I don't know why I do these things. I tend to pick things that intimidate me, Um, but I I want to start with a story. Actually, I'm going to start with two stories because they they articulate different parts uh, of who I am and and what we're going to talk about, but if you don't know this about me, I'm a sinner, right? (laughs) Sorry to burst the bubble if you didn't know that, and uh, I have a huge pride issue is one of those things. I remember two distinct uh, situations back at home. One was, uh, so I was a really good musician and a really good uh, academic a student at school. Now, I've hit the age, some of you are beyond this age, and so you know exactly what I'm talking about, some of you are fast approaching it. I've hit that age where I've realized when I start talking about my music prowess, that that was 20 years ago, <laughs> that I'm not that person anymore. Uh, that when I talk about some of my accomplishments, I'm like, dang, that was a long time ago. I can't say that's me anymore. That has to be my past. Um, so this is one of those situations. I was uh, probably 15, 16. I was involved in music a lot. And there was this competition that we did in our home county. And kids from all of the schools all over the area would come and perform. And, and this one particular competition, uh, I think this was one where I was singing in a tenor solo class. Uh, and there were three people in the class, and lo and behold, I won. And I'm like, I'm amazing, I won the class, because I always won the class, right? So, but, but there's this one day, we're here at this competition, I win the class, it was kind of expected, and uh, my mom, I look at my mom, and I'm kind of grinning, and she's like, well, you didn't win the class before it. The class before it was a class of under 16 girls, and there were like 40 of them in the class. She goes, that girl went home with an accomplishment. She'd be out 39 other people. You'd be out two people that couldn't sing. So I don't know what you're bragging about. And it's just like that, that little knockdown. So here's, uh, th- this is going to continue to knock me down. So don't think I'm bigging myself up here. So we get home from the day. I'm a little like knocked off my high horse. And then I'm sitting at home and I get a phone call. And I answer the phone, and they're like, Scott Burns there, this is the Ayrshire Music Festival. And I'm like, yeah, what's happened? They're like, well, every year we pick a singer, like the the best under 21 singer in the contest, and they want to give you the award for best vocalist. And I was like, what does that mean? They're like, of all the classes, you win the award. And I was like, so the class before me that had 40 girls, you tell me I beat them? They're like, yes. So, <laughs> so I hang up the phone and I look at mom and I'm like, mom, guess what? They were on the phone to tell me. <laughs> uh, you know, those 40 girls that you said had a greater accomplishment. My mom, like, so this is me having fun with my mom. My mom says, oh, that's amazing. You should go and call your gran. And this is the reality of my, my journey. I was like, I can't call my gran. She's like, Oh, why not go, to, like, your gran will be so pleased. Call your gran, let her know that, that you won. That's a big accomplishment. I said, oh, I can't do that. Why not? Oh, well, that, that would be bragging, <laughs> right? I, I, I can't do it. You, you call her. You call her and tell her. What was going on inside me? Of course I wanted to tell her. I wanted everyone to know. I wanted the moment where she's gushing on the phone. This is amazing, and she's crying. I wanted it, and I pretended I didn't, right? I had been a kid that was filled with pride and arrogance. Mom always said, you were just so full of yourself, you'd always tell everyone how amazing you were. So most of your childhood was us like, you can't say that, don't do it. And so what happened? Did mom like get pride out of me? No, but she taught me to hide it. 
So I became a master of false humility. Oh, that's a great drawing. Oh, no, it's really not. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's really, really good. Oh, no, it's not. Oh, it's so good. I'm like, oh, you really think so? Well, what's good about it? Because I think it's terrible. Uh, I became a master of false, false humility. Pride is there. I think about another story back at home. Um, the girl's name is Jenna. Uh, Jenna was my nemesis in school. Uh, especially in the math arena, I was, I was the, the top of the math class. And uh, everyone knew it. And I was the guy that everyone was out to beat. And there'd be these days where like, you'd set a test and I'd drop a few points. And I'd beat myself up about it. And then I'd hear someone in the corner go to Jenna. Jenna, like, what did you get? I got 99. And I'm looking at my 98. And I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, exit the room as quickly as possible. Because I didn't want someone else to hear that I wasn't the best. That was the extent of my pride. Like, I wanted everyone to know I was the best, so I would hide anything that got in the way of that. And I think that's true of all of us. So, like, this is confessions of a pastor. Should I just keep going? This feels great. <laughs> um, pride is insidious. And, uh, and there's one way it works in us, um, but if we don't deal with it properly, it becomes this subtle underlying issue. So in, in this series, we're going to look at vices, vices, um, uh, the subtle and not so subtle ways that sin grips our hearts and then animates the, w- the way we live in the world. And so I want to I set up this by talking about some basic aspects of our transformational journey. And, and some of this you've heard me say before in different contexts, but I just want to make sure we set the right foundation. So I want to start by talking about what we call spiritual formation. Um, we are all in the process of being formed into something. Uh, We are all, everyone in this room, everyone in the world is being spiritually formed because we're spiritual beings. The question on the table is, what is forming you? Are you being spiritually formed towards the likeness of Jesus? Or are you being spiritually formed away from Jesus? And are you aware of the things in your life that either intentionally or unintentionally are forming you? Like even sitting here right now, you're in a process of spiritual formation. When you go home tonight, you're in a process of spiritual formation. Who are the people that you spend your life with? Are they forming you toward the likeness of Jesus or are those people pulling you away from who he is? Where are the places that you spend your time, whether real places or virtual places? And what are they doing in the way they form, the way they view the world, the way you act, the way you treat people? And the biggest one in society today, media, media forms us. When you binge watch a Netflix show, For the period of time that you're watching the show, you are giving your mind and your spirit to the creators of the show to form you. And when you take a series like Friends or Big Bang Theory, or I don't even know what a new one is that people are watching. Arrested Development, that's old too. Um, Oh, dang, I'm getting old, people. A little hit to the pride. But, um, but when you watch these things, you watch 10 seasons of a show for hours and hours of your life, you're giving a group of scriptwriters in Hollywood the ability to shape your spiritual being. We see it in the movies we watch, um, the news outlets we listen to. And, and, and if you didn't know this, just because something claims to be Christian doesn't mean it's forming you into the image of Jesus. 
And I'll tell you, I've had conversations with pretty much everyone in the room, and I know there are things that you watch and listen to and engage in that have the label Christian, and I hear things come out people's mouths, and I'm like, if that's what you're listening to, it's not forming you into the likeness of Jesus. So we can't be tricked into thinking if it's got Christian on it, it means my formation is going to be the way it needs to be. And one of the other things that forms us the most is our thought life. As a result of all of those other things, as a result of the things you listened to uh, when you were growing up, the lies that have been spoken to you, the encouragements that you have been given, in your silent moments and in your defeated moments, there's a narrative that plays over and over in your head that is forming you. For Christians, our primary concern and the primary question we should be asking is, are all of the things that we're engaging in forming us into the likeness of Jesus or not? Our primary concern is we want to be formed to look and act and think like him. So what are the things I'm allowing to form my spirituality? Um, And those things are not just church. Paul had a lot that he said about the formation process. This this verse in Ephesians 4 is going to be really familiar. He said this, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitudes of your mind, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what's he saying? There's a formational process that you're going to walk in that involves some things from who you were that you've got to put off. And some things that are being given to you, as we talked about last week, the vision that God gives us for how we're supposed to live that we then want to put on. So the Christian transformational journey, the Christian process of spiritual formation, the theological word, the process of sanctification is a process of learning how we put off what is old and then we put on what is new. Um, We know that we're given this amazing power source, the Holy Spirit. So people out there in the world cannot shed the old self. They may be able to make minor improvements that last for a season but have no eternal value. But we're given the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to overcome our broken mechanisms in order to put off what is old and put on what is new. And Paul, when he writes Ephesians, he writes Colossians about the same time from the same prison. And so these letters have very similar themes. So in Colossians, some of the things that he says in Ephesians are expanded a little bit. So here's some of what he says in Colossians 3, 5 to 14. I've kind of cut some parts out just to condense it down. But this is what he says to the Colossian church. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. You must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with those practices. And have put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Um, I walked into pre-service prayer today just a bit frustrated with the, not, not necessarily this church, the church. Because when I read these lists, especially that last list, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and love, that, are, that is not the words I hear people use to describe the church. And I'm sure if you look at your own life, if I do an inventory of my own life, I think there's more of the first list at play than there is of the second list. 
And I think we sit in this place in the church where we look at ourselves and say we're Christians, therefore we're holy, and all the people out there are miserable sinners doing horrible, evil, wicked things. Um, But sometimes I see more compassion and kindness and humility out there. And I see more impurity and slander and rage and anger in here. And so something is not right. Something is not right in our formation if we can pursue Jesus and continue to walk in these areas of brokenness and not see the cultivation of these virtues in their place. So what is forming you and are you being formed into the likeness of Jesus? Uh, A good image when it comes to sanctification is it's the process from death to life, right? There's a a little diagram here of the cycle that we walk in. One of the things that I love about how God has functioned in the world is we see the gospel present in all of creation, right? So we see the cycle of death and life in the human life cycle as people die and new babies are born. We see it in nature around about us as trees lose their leaves and their seeds. They fall to the ground, they die, and by the springtime, new life springs up. It's inherent in life around us that we live in a cycle of death and life. Uh, The promise of the gospel is we don't have to be stuck in death and that we are given this new abundant life that Jesus offers to us. Um, The more of the abundant life of Jesus we get, the more we want to put to death the things that don't align with him. The more we put to death the things that don't align with him, the more we experience the abundant life that he offers to us. The process always starts with death. That's the part we don't like, right? Um, So this whole series is going to be a real encouraging, like, tell all your friends to come because we're just going to talk for a couple of months about things that we need to die to. Um, So if this is your first Sunday, welcome to Happy Church. Um, (laughs) It won't be that bad, I'm hoping. There are so many things, if I'm honest about my own life, and I think when we go in the prayer room and we see and we're exposed to what's going on in the world, we're aware of the many things in our life that we need to die to. Uh, There are a hundred things. I'm like, oh, I need to not be so short with the kids. I need to be more productive in this area of my life. I need to be more intentional with my brother. I need to be less materialistic when it comes to the house. I need to be more diligent over here. I need to pray more. I need to worship more. I need to fast more. Uh, I I need to be less critical and, and less opinionated. We know the things that we got to work on. And so sometimes as you look at the, the areas of brokenness, it can become really overwhelming to figure out where do we start. And so what this series is going to do is we're going to look at what the Bible says and what church history has passed down to us as the root sins from which all of the other ones are flowing. And the hopes that if we can start to identify what's at the root of what we're doing, Uh, then we'll see the the transformation that we want. So um, as we begin a series on vices, let me give a definition of vice that we're going to use through this series to to delineate one type of sin from another. So this is a vice, a habit or character trait which inclines us towards certain types of actions. So this is not just a one-off, I went and I forgot to pay for my ticket and so I just didn't pay it, so you're a thief. Um, It's not like I I did a one-off thing. This is what are the habituated patterns that we find ourselves walking in, the thought processes and the heart postures that then fuel a lot of the other brokenness that we walk in. So it's a habit or a character trait which inclines us towards certain types of actions. Um, And this is all stuff that we've inherited from the fall that we're about to see in a moment. 
We can consider vices, another word that we can use in place of vice is ruts. What are the ruts that we find ourselves in that make it really difficult to get out of? And if you remember, ruts at the end of the day are grooves that have formed in a roadway because traffic has been traveling over and over the same direction. So that by the time the, the, like the, the wheels of the horses and carts would be going along the road, they'd uh, create these grooves. And so as you're driving along, the wheels sit in the grooves. And then when you try and get out of the groove and turn a corner, you can't because the wheels are stuck in these grooves. This is, this is vices. There are these ruts that we get stuck in. And one of the things that's fascinating, maybe with book group, we'll read a book on uh, neuroscience as it impacts Christianity. One of the fascinating things that neuroscience continues to show us is that we create mental neural pathways in our mind based around the common actions that we engage in. So if you're someone that is always critical, what happens when you make a critical comment is your brain finds the shortest way from one set of synapses to the other part of your brain and it forms a pathway through your brain. And the more times you do it, the clearer that pathway becomes so that when you try and do something, the default is for the signal to go through a critical pathway. When you deal with lust, the process of uh, looking at things you shouldn't, of a, a self-pleasure, and then that moment of orgasm, right? We're, we're in a church, we're going to get real. The moment of orgasm is one of the greatest rewards your body can get. And what happens through that repeated process of engaging in sexual immorality is that a pathway forms in your head. I'm feeling down. The quickest way in my brain from down to feeling good is that pathway that goes through pornography or that pathway that goes through an illicit affair. Um, and so your body is creating these pathways that historically are vices. These are the things in our life that we're caught in. The beauty is both the gospel, the Bible as a whole, and the whole cognitive neuroscience world is telling us that there are things that we can do to get out of these ruts and break these pathways and form new ones so that we can live differently in the world. And I love when I look at things like science and they're having these amazing discoveries that are revolutionizing the way they treat brain issues and psychology and counseling and all of the solutions have been in the Bible for the last 2,000 years. Right? They confirm that we are walking in the path that we're supposed to be walking in. So if we want to be people that walk in the process of becoming like Jesus, if we want to have a vision for who we want to be, part of that process is going to be we've got to identify the major vice issues in our life and then walk a process of putting those to death so that we can become more like Jesus. Um, another illustration to help bring this home, if you picture a tree, um, there's a really beautiful picture up here, very detailed uh, <laughs> I mean, Jesus uses agricultural imagery all the time. You've got that beautiful foliage at the top. And a lot of the time what we do is we walk out into the world and we spend all our time examining the foliage. The word Jesus talks about all the time is the fruit. Uh, we know that those roots are where the nourishment is coming from. If those roots are diseased, the tree will bear no fruit. If the roots are diseased and getting the wrong thing, the tree fruit is going to be diseased. And so we can spend all our time on that tree picking diseased fruit off the branches or we can spend our time getting to those roots and chopping off the roots that are diseased so that the fruit that we want to see will happen. In every generation in the church, there are fruits, bad fruits, in the culture around us that we get really stuck on. 
we get stuck on this person is living this way, this person's saying that, this person's voting that way, this person did this thing. And while we spend all our time pointing to the bad fruit out there, we're quite happy to sit in our pride and our greed and our lust and our gluttony. We'll we'll slander someone out there for their choice of sexuality while we go home and look at pornography. We're so hypocritical in the way that we work this stuff, but what happens in the church is we get really good at curating the kind of fruit that we want people to see. We walk in the false humility of, I can't tell Gran. Well, the whole time inside, I'm desperate to hear the words that are going to come out of her mouth that tell me how great I am. So we've got to figure out what are the issues in us so that we can more effectively walk out in the world. I think about uh, people that I hear who are constantly criticizing the way the government, whatever government is in power at the time. I think about people that are constantly criticizing the way the government spends their money and yet they sit on their wealth and hoard it in their own home. It's like the contradiction of those moments. I think about people who, this, this one always humors me, when I'm in a room and people are complaining about someone else's opinion. And I'm like, you're giving me your opinion and complaining about the other person's complaining opinion. You see the issue that we're walking in. Um, we so easily get focused on the fruit of others and fail to look at what's going on in ourselves. So um, the Bible identifies the one vice at the root of all the others and that's where we're starting today is this root of pride. Um, I just want to say, I'm not going to give a, we're not going to sit for the next hour and give an exhaustive exploration of pride because this is the root of all the others. So with everything we're going to look at from here, pride is going to be fed in to what we're doing. And so we're going to study pride as we look at all of the other issues that we're going to address. I don't have this definition up here, um, but just to give you a definition of pride, at its simplest, pride is the pursuit of superior status. So pride is about superiority. When I was with Jenna and I didn't want to admit, I didn't want to admit that I wasn't the best. I wanted to be superior to everyone else. Um, Another word that we use that comes from the Latin, we use the word hubris, which is an inflated sense of your own status, ability, or accomplishments. At the end of the day, pride is about how do I be superior to everyone else out there. Genesis 1 through 3, God creates the world. Uh, He creates this beautiful garden filled with all sorts of trees. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, have at it. There's one thing not to do. I I watched someone give a sermon on this one time. um, And he's like, when we think about Adam and Eve in the garden, it's almost like the garden is this size and this is the tree. And it's like, just don't eat from the tree. (laughs) It's like, he's given them this giant garden and there's one tree over in the corner not to eat from. And we know how this story goes, that they eat from the tree that was forbidden. So Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. I want to go back to the beginning and remind us where this all stems from. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We can eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But he did say, Not fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was, uh, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it to her husband who was with her and he did it and the eyes of them were open. 
Let's see if that fixes itself or if I need to grab a different mic. In this moment, it's all set up as this temptation to become like God, right? We, we talk about this in the church all the time. We want to be like God. Adam and Eve and this desire to be like God. I, I think I, I read this story and I'm like, in their ignorance, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How many people in here would like to have no knowledge of good and evil? Okay, no one? <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I wish I didn't know about good and evil. I wish that was not knowledge that I had. I wish my kids didn't have to learn about good and evil. I wish we didn't have whole school systems and safety systems and law enforcement systems to help guard against uh, the evil that exists in the world. Adam and Eve in this moment and their desire to be godlike gave us an intimate knowledge of the evil that we would walk in. This desire to be like God. And where did that desire come from? I think we miss sometimes in this Bible story um, that, that what is happening here is Satan is trying to conform Adam and Eve into his image. I don't think we think of this. When we think about spiritual transformation, you're either being conformed to the image of Jesus or you're being conformed to the image of the world. And the image of the world is the image of Satan. And so we're on this journey where we're trying to be formed into the image of Christ and yet he is fighting against that because he wants us to look like him. And in this moment, he says, if you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Why does that matter? Because we're told in Isaiah 14 that this is what Satan did. God says to him, you said in your heart, I'll ascend to the heavens, I'll raise my throne above the stars of God, I'll sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. This is what he's been doing. Satan wasn't content to be God's uh, uh, chief angel. Uh, He wanted more. He wanted to be above him, and has been fighting ever since creation to oust God from his place of authority. God casts him down to earth. He takes this opportunity. God's put these people over his creation. So if I, maybe I can tempt them to usurp God. And they can become just like me. They're going to follow me instead of him. So Satan, since the inception of the world, has been trying to get us away from following God. Where we have wholeness and fullness and abundance of life. Into being formed into his image and following him. Where we bring strife and evil and destruction into the world. So, I mean, this is all stuff we know, right? So we look at the things in our life that we don't want to have happen. We're like, I hate that I do this thing. I hate that I shouted at my wife last night. I hated that I looked at pornography. I hated that I cheated on my taxes. I hated that I cut someone off uh, as I was driving down the road. We hate these things. But something in us drives it. And Satan is masterfully at work trying to bring the shame and the fear and the destruction. We are masterful and crafting ways to grab hold uh, of God-likeness. Whether that's as an oppressor that's trodden on the toes of other people, saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to the top, all the way to the other extreme where we're stuck in a victim mentality, where we feel superior by pointing the finger at everyone else out there who did something wrong. I'm perfect. The situation I'm in is because they betrayed me, and they hurt me, and they stole from me. So whether you're the one causing the oppression or you're the one that's being suffered, we find ways to point the finger to make us better than everybody else. We have this drive to be like God that fuels, I think this fuels the social media world. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present. What does social media give us? 
for the first time with the advent of like Facebook, I can be everywhere in the world at one time. I can know exactly what my brother is doing. I can know exactly what our friends are doing in India. I can know exactly what's happening here. People in my old church, I can know it all. I can be everywhere I want to be. I can Zoom with people on the other side of the world so I don't have to go there. And it gives us this, this feeling. Like I have knowledge is power, right? How many times in a day do you grab your phone to try and find some information uh, that you don't have, that you don't necessarily need? It's like, what was the name of that? You're, all of a sudden you're on your phone for 10 minutes trying to find it. Conversations ended because we want this feeling of being all-knowing. The internet, social media, the desire to be an influencer, the the celebration of celebrities, the desire for control and wealth are all this drive to be godlike as we work in the world. There's a much more subtle problem when it comes to pride in the church that Jesus addresses. And this is, it's easy to think about the other thing and big nebulous issues, but this is where Jesus brings it into the religious system. And I think where this really hits home for us as the church. This is Luke chapter 18. Again, a really familiar passage because this is the foundation of the rest of what we're going to be talking about. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else. It's a great description of the Western church. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, those robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat on his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." So easy when you get in the conversation of sin to point the finger at everyone else. And it's so easy to define sins by the big, huge ones so that we can get out of having to look at the the sin that exists in our own heart. Jesus, all the way through the Gospels, all the way through his life, was concerned with the nuances of what was going on in people's hearts. We've all got people in our life, people groups, demographics, that we go, glad I'm not like them. Right. If you were in the prayer room, we, we left the foot washing series up. Beautiful piece of artwork by, uh, by a Christian gal. The, uh, the whole purpose of the series, she says, it, it, the tagline is, it's, it's not about who's in the seat, it's about who's washing the feet. You should, if you haven't looked at it yet, go have a look at it. But I think we can all look at some of the pictures that are on that board and go, man, I'm so glad I'm not like that person. Um, I feel like this is the default posture of the Western church. Like we, we read a passage like this and we're like, oh, we're the humble tax collectors. Uh, we know Jesus, so we've been humbled. We've given our life to him. We're trying really hard to live like him in the world. But when I look at the church, when I listen to people talk, I hear more statements that look like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that other person. I turn up for pre-service prayer. Where were they? I go to church every week. They don't. I go to a small church where people can really know each other, not one of those big mega churches where you walk in the door and you just warm a seat and no one's actually walking with Jesus anyway, right? I believe that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, not like those people that think he's like 
It's going to be a long, 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 long time. Uh, you know, we, we all have these things in the church. It's like we take our sin and we suddenly put Christian clothing on it and it makes it okay. Um, but we're all steeped in the same pride that, that what are we trying to do? We're trying to make ourselves superior. We're, we're seeking a sense uh, of elevated status by pointing at other people and pointing out the flaws and who they are and what they're doing. Pride is the root issue, but it comes with a bunch of symptoms. And you can tell the level of pride in your life by paying attention to some of the symptoms. So every week as we look at a vice, we're going to look at what the vice is and we're going to look at some of the symptoms. Let's look at some of the symptoms of pride and what they might look like. And I want you to take a moment and ask yourself, which of these do I have present in my life in this moment? Ingratitude. Actually, Ignatius of Loyola, who's the founder of the Jesuits, he said, he actually argued that this is the root of all the other sins, not pride. Um, ingratitude, not uh, complaining that we don't have enough, not being content with what we have. A critical spirit, always pointing out the flaws that you see as your way of trying to say, I hold the superior standard, no one else does, and so it's my job to let everyone else know what is right and what is wrong. If you walk in a critical spirit, it comes from pride. Superficiality, focusing on appearance, focusing on things that don't really matter, materialism, do I have the right car? Do I have the right thing? Is all about how do I make myself superior to the people around about? Unteachable. Assuming that you already know it all. Disregarding the wise advice other people give you. Believing that if someone else doesn't fit within your framework that there's nothing to learn from them and so you never even bother. Uh, and unable to receive any type of correction or instruction. This is the most challenging when you think about it this way. We can perceive ourselves as teachable when we think we're teachable only, only under certain conditions and with certain people. So if my favorite author is telling me to do something or my favorite pastor or my favorite teacher, I'll do it. But this person over here, when they say, here's something you should work on, you go, oh no. So you're unteachable if you can only receive instruction from a narrow group of people in a narrow way. Uh, And then we trick ourselves, like I do all the time, into thinking I'm super teachable. Opinionated. Frequently sharing your opinions with others whether they want them or not. (laughs) Uh, And you'll find, if you're one of those people, you may find that other people know your opinions, but you don't know theirs. Because you're too busy sharing your opinion. Uh, It's more time talking than listening. Uh, self-dependent. I don't need anyone else. I can do it myself. This is seen the most in the refusal to ask for directions when you're driving somewhere and you think you might be lost. It's the refusal to ask for help because asking for help means that I'm needy. If you're one of those people that's like, I can't ask for help. I don't want, I don't want someone to see me as needy. That is pride at work in you. It's not humility. Pretense. This is probably my favorite I shouldn't have a favorite sin, should I? Uh, This is the one that I mastered through childhood. Putting the best foot forward. Presenting your best self. Hiding the things that make you look anything less than perfect. Not telling people that you dropped one more point than the other person because it keeps you on the top. It's always putting the best foot forward. Never real. Never vulnerable. Um, And I, I I hear stories as people say, you know, we meet together and we meet all the time and no one's ever really vulnerable. That's pride at work. Um, Haughtiness. Uh, 
I deserve this. I don't deserve that. I'm not going to set up tables. That's beneath me. I'm not going to go visit that person. That's beneath me. I'm not going to clean up the dirt outside. That's beneath me. Haughtiness is, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm too good for this. False humility, I talked about that one already. I, I'm the master. False humility is inside. I want the acclaim and I want everyone to know I'm awesome, but I'm going to pretend that I don't so that they'll tell me that I am. <laughs> uh, we see this in the church in this way. Man, that was a really great song that you sung today. Oh, it wasn't me, it was all Jesus. Right? You know that, oh man, when you went and you were so generous, that was lovely. Oh no, that wasn't me, it's just all God. That's actually false humility. It's better to say, man, thanks for the encouragement. False humility pretends it's one thing when it's not. Entitlement, we're great for this in this culture. I deserve this. I don't deserve that. I've earned the right to say whatever I want because I've done my time. I'm not going to tiptoe around this issue anymore. I'm going to say it as it is because I've earned my right. The sense of entitlement, my opinions and how I feel is more important than another person. Um, And getting slightly more Christian-y spiritual unrepentance, the inability to say sorry, the inability to admit we've done something wrong, And finally, uh, perhaps the one that's the biggest indictment of the pride of the American church is our prayerlessness. Because what is prayerlessness? It's saying that we've got it. We don't need God. We don't need his help. We don't need to confess. We can do it all on our own. All the symptoms that we walk in. So the question, where do you see those things at play in your life? Do you hear regularly? A good exercise with this is to go home to, to your family or friends that know you well. And ask them, like, what things do you hear come from me all the time? I'm always complaining, like, wanting something else, never content with what I have. I'm always critical, like, like do I share my opinions too much? Um, or, or do the simple exercise of how much time do I spend in a week in prayer? And that will reveal the amount of, uh, of pride that we're walking in. A simple prayer, Jesus, search my heart. See if there's a fanny, any offensive way in me. Um, and then we bring this into the church, right? We, we, again, we put it in Christian clothes. Like pride in the church is uh, Christian language, asceticism, right? Like I fast a lot or I don't watch R-rated movies. I don't drink alcohol. Uh, uh, we, we, we take these elements of what can be healthy spirituality and we use them to make us better than someone else. I'm a super Christian. I spent 25,000 hours in the prayer room this week. Uh, so I'm so much better than everyone else. It's legalism. I'm going to control the people around about me by giving them a bunch of rules that they have to follow. And as Jesus convicted the Pharisees, not lifting a finger to help it. We, we have socially acceptable and culturally acceptable sin that we walk in that's rooted in pride. One of the biggest ones that our culture celebrates, workaholism. I hate when I hear the words come out of my mouth. Someone's like, how's your week been? And I'm like, oh, it's busy. Like it's some sort of like great thing to celebrate that I had a really busy and accomplished week. It's pride that wants to look busy, that wants to accomplish much and in the process isn't willing to take time to rest. What's the cure? Lahab did a great job of explaining this as she recounted her prayer room experience. The cure is death. The cure is death to self. The cure for pride is the process of surrender. 
It's to acknowledge once again that I'm a sinner in need of Jesus. It's to acknowledge once again that he is the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present one and that I don't have to be that. It's to acknowledge once again that he knows the condition of your heart and you can fool everyone else, but you're never gonna fool him. And then it's the process of repentance, the decision followed by deliberate action that says I'm gonna try and live differently as we walk in the world. So all through this series, there's gonna be a call back to this place of surrender, this place of repentance. And and here's the beauty. This is not about let's all feel bad, we're all prideful and we're all arrogant, we're all horrible people. The reality is we serve a Jesus who knows every single sin issue that you walk in And yet he calls you his dearly beloved. Like he knows everything you've done wrong. He knows the extent of your pride and all of the things you hide from the people around about you. Yet he chose to come the third person of the Trinity to come and dwell inside of you to be your partner in overcoming the brokenness that you walk in. He didn't say, get away from me. You don't belong in my people. He said, come and let me live in you to give you the power you need to become like Jesus. Examining sin and choosing to put off the old is the best way to magnify your understanding of the grace of God. So this series, we're calling it vices and we're looking at vice, but really, This is a series on grace and learning to embrace the grace that comes from him and then hopefully to walk together offering grace to one another. So how I want to end today, um, we're going to take communion together. We we like to take communion usually the first week of the month. Uh, and, And so as we do this, I want you to reflect on pride in your life. Maybe you want to be a bit more general and look at sin in general in your life. But let me remind you of Paul's words. Uh, Ruben's going to come up. Do you want a finger pick a little bit or something? Um, these are Paul's words about communion. Uh, we, we often read part of it and ignore some of it. But they're, they're having a meal. He says, this is chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, he says, I hear that when you come together as a church, there's division. And I believe it. No doubt you have differences among you. And when you come together, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. As each of you eats, you're, doing, you're not waiting for other people. You're letting someone be hungry. Another person's getting drunk. You've got homes that you can eat in and get drunk in. I don't know how I feel about you right now, Paul. Um, don't you have homes to eat and get drunk in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? Should I praise you for these things? No. And then he says, I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink from it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against his body and his blood. So a person should examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. Because if you eat and drink without recognizing the body of the Lord, you bring judgment on yourself. We ignore that part when we come to communion. So this is an invitation. Uh, communion is here. Like grace is free. There is nothing you, are, you have done that isn't covered by the grace of Jesus. And so take a moment Uh, think through what are some of the the ways these symptoms are present in my life. Tell Jesus about them and then go over and proclaim his death and with his death, proclaim your death 
Jesus, I need to die to these things. And then as we take the body and the blood, we're bringing Jesus into us. Like it's an acknowledgement, like I'm dead. I need your life in me to make me the way you want me to be in the world. Um, so we'll do that and then, and then we'll finish with some worship.